0: hello and welcome to the media democracy podcast a look at politics the media and the politics of the media we're brought to you by the media fund at the media fund on twitter my co-host as ever is tom mills at TA underscore Mills on Twitter. And my name is Dan Hind. at Dan Hind on Twitter. This week, we're very pleased to be joined by David Waring. David has just finished a PhD at the School of Oriental and African Studies at the University of London, which looks at Britain's relationship with the Gulf Arab monarchies. David's book on this subject will be published next year by Polity. And David's written on a, a number of related subjects looking at national identity, immigration, and the ways in which they relate to foreign policy. Uh, You can find his work on The Guardian and Navarra and many other places. And I do recommend very strongly that you uh, check out some of his articles um, on the UK's foreign policy. Now, this week we're going to start by talking about uh, UK foreign policy itself, what it is, uh, what the British state is trying to do. And from there we're going to look at the ways in which the major UK media treat this foreign policy. Finally, we'll, we'll we'll end by looking at how we can start to change both the policy and how it is represented. So, David, can we can we start with really just a sort of um, an outline introduction, a, be- a beginner's guide, if you like, to the UK's foreign policy as of two thousand and seventeen?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think really the formative thing with regards to UK foreign policy is is empire. So, notwithstanding the fact that. We've left the era of formal imperialism, colonialism certainly behind. Um, yeah, the, for, the, the, the formative kind of influence on modern foreign, British foreign policy is empire. You think about how the British Isles and the British state became plugged into the global system that we see today, which I think, in a long historical view, is defined by capitalism. Um, it was the empire that really formed that. So. Um, It was the British state that played a really leading role in creating the kind of capitalist framework within which the world was um, increasingly integrated. The British state played a leading role in the formation of certain uh, states, um, particularly in the Middle East and in Africa and South Asia. Um, And the way in which the political economy of Britain started plugging into the rest of the world was was, was formed in, in that period. So if you fast forward now, I think really one of the key moments is, is the end of World War II, where effectively British state planners realise that they can no longer manage this international capitalist system in the way they once did, but they need that system to continue. And so they realise that effectively the baton has to be passed to the US, because the US is the one state capable of, of managing that international economic system, that the particularly open kind of international economic system that British capitalism needs and that the British state wants to wants to continue. So within that kind of framework of American hegemony or so American global leadership if you want to use the kind of liberal um, terminology what the British have tried to do is maximise their utility if you want a better word or maximise their influence within that overarching framework. So the British state has tried to maintain to the greatest extent possible its ability to project military power internationally, its um, its usefulness to the United States and its projection of military power, um, its diplomatic reach, um, the usefulness of its intelligence services, and obviously, of course, as well... Um, you know, the reach of British capital and the success of British capitalism, success as in, you know, for the capitalists rather than for for, for the general public. Um, So if you fast forward to the present day, you see pretty much a continuation of that long-term strategic aim. Um, So the the building of these aircraft carriers that have just been um, built and just been you know, put out to sea a few months ago. That's all part of Britain trying to project military power internationally in a way that is perhaps complementary to American um, attempts to do the same. You know, so with regard to the Middle East, like a key um, sort of strategic part of the of the world, for he stays interested in global hegemony. the British have that ability to project their military power out there to send their aircraft carriers into the Arabian Persian Gulf and fly there, you know, Europe typhoons and what have you, off those aircraft carriers to carry out bombing raids in Syria or Iraq. Um, and to do that in a way that's complementary to, to American efforts to do the same, to project military power into those parts of the world. So there's a projection of military power, I think that's really important. Right. Um, the role of um, the city of London, as well as really the leading global financial center, key sort of node of global capitalism, I mean that's got its roots in in empire as well. Um, the, the Britain's foreign economic relations in empire, a lot of it was about British investments into the into the global south, and um, that platform, the city of London, for sending those investments out into the rest of the world. You know, we, we've we've carried that with us today. Um, so Britain, because it's a global investor, because it's a hub for global investment. It needs an open international economy, an economy that's open to, um, open to Western capital, so it's got a, a really big stake in the continuation of neoliberalism. And, yeah, I mean, that, that's one aspect of it, the economic side, and the other aspect of it is the military side. So I think those are the two key aspects of, of British foreign policy today. Can we project military power internationally? Can we maintain a global economic order that's reasonably open to, to investment capital, particularly ours?
0: And is the idea that our military capabilities are a way of securing from the Americans a, a privileged position in, in, a, in a global order that they underwrite? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. So we, we, can, we maintain sort of very intimate relations at state to state level so that London's privileges are some, somehow naturalized within the, the global American imperium.
1: Yeah, exactly, exactly. So the commitment to to US leadership, and you can see it at key points where that's been tested. So like in the early 2000s, when the Bush administration had this particular project to extend American power, to extend and entrench American hegemony to take a much more kind of proactive or belligerent approach to the US leadership role, the British had a kind of... The British were almost being tested at that point. Do you want to go along with all this, no matter how destructive it's increasingly um, becoming, or do you want to detach yourselves from it and go along with the Europeans who were opposing the invasion of Iraq, for example, um, for their own reasons? And the British chose the side of the Americans very clearly. Um, and that was part of, you know, something deep. I mean, the invasion of Iraq is always put on Blair specifically, but it's really an expression of, Britain's deeper strategic commitments. We stick with the Americans because that's how we maximise our own influence within the system. Um, and we saw that with Trump as well, that the, the impetus, not just from the Conservative government, but from you know, intellectuals and the media and what have you, talk about British foreign policy, was not how do we extricate ourselves from an alliance with a state that is now led by a guy who's a borderline um, right-wing extremist. But rather, it was how do we maintain this alliance, even though this guy is in charge? How do we stay close to the Americans? You know, you have Theresa May famously holding his hand, but that that symbolizes something broader. You know, so in these really extreme examples, extreme points, American yeah. foreign policy, the British have shown just how committed they are to that alliance.
2: David, could you talk a bit about the extent to which um, these kinds of arrangements and these deeply held assumptions have been contested politically? Because what you've talked about is you've described a, a quite... Um, a deep continuity from the uh, colonial period into the the present and the relationship with the United States. So um, how far are these things being politically contested by movements? How effective has that been? And how, to what extent has that been reflected in formal political discussions, disagreements between political elites? Yeah. Um, I think
1: there's, there's two kinds of debate that go on. There's the debate within the elite, and then there's debate coming from outside. And at any given point, any given foreign policy crisis, you'll get those two kinds of dissent. So the first kind of dissent will say um, this particular course of action, say the Iraq war or the Suez crisis, this particular course of action is not pragmatic. You know, it's not pragmatic in terms of this is not good for the British state, it's not good for the British influence in the world, it's not good for the British imperialism, if you want to use those, that kind of terminology it's not a sensible way for us to proceed if we want to be a powerful and influential country in the world. Um, so that's the kind of elite debate, you know, is it bad for us or not? And then there's always, and not just recently, but going right back into the days of empire, there's always a dissent coming from outside of that, which says, no, it's not just bad for us, it's fundamentally wrong, it's morally wrong. Um, and you will always find at the margins there will be dissidents making those sorts of criticisms. And, um, if you go back to the 1950s, you had you know a few Labour MPs who would be challenging British imperial policy on a more kind of fundamental, in a more kind of fundamental way, um, holding Britain to account, for example, things like um, torture in Kenya what have you. The more likely it's coming out of of movement politics, a kind of extra parliamentary movement politics of the left. Um, and we saw that with. With the Iraq war, you had groups like Stop the War Coalition, or you had CND with regard to other issues who were critiquing British foreign policy in a more fundamental, and a more moral way. Um, And I think it's important to distinguish between the two, the people who are criticising a particular foreign policy choice because it's not pragmatic, and the others who are making a more thoroughgoing critique, which is often anti-imperialist. And how
2: significant do you think um, Jeremy Corbyn's leadership of the Labour Party is going to be for uh, British foreign policy?
1: Um, I mean, Mm -hmm. it's very significant because there's there's a key difference here, I think, with previous Labour leaders. Um, So, Corbyn, I think, is often when we try and set Corbyn in context, the Corbyn moment, what a Corbyn led government would would hopefully achieve if you come from the position of supporting that is is people on the left will often say, well, the big, the, the key moments in the history of the political economy of the UK since the war are 1945, where the 1945 government entrenched uh, social democracy, sort of egalitarian social democracy, and 1979, where Thatcher um, brought in the, the neoliberal approach. The people look at Corbyn as kind of hope that we can either go back to an old kind of social democracy or, um, you know, someone's going to institute a new one. So you think of him as kind of Atlee Mark II, if you like, Atlee 2.0. What I think is interesting about that, when we see him as a kind of new Atlee, is that Corbyn in many ways is a real departure from previous Labour leaders, including Atley. Um, so if you take the example of Attlee, you know, the, I think he's the... Past Labour Prime Minister, who's most loved amongst the Labour movement, that government was an imperialist government. That was the government that put a blockade on Iran when the Iranians nationalised their oil industry, so that they could raise the living standards of their population. So when they were doing exactly what the British government, the British Labour government, were doing, the Attlee government opposed that blockade of the country and misreated the country further. Um, it was a, like, at the Atlee government who fought this counterinsurgency war in Malaya, which is all pretty brutal. Whereas Corbyn is, when you look at his politics, is a straightforward, the anti imperialist, anti militarist um, figure. That's in his bones, that's in his political philosophy. And when you, look, when you watch his speech to Chatham House before the election, um, and it really comes through. He's not trying to hide that. He's had to make a few compromises on, with regard to Trident, with regard to membership of NATO. So he's a pragmatist, but fundamentally his philosophy, his anti-imperialist, anti-militarist philosophy, shines through. He wants to, Britain's role in the world to be more about facilitating dialogue, to um, you know bring conflicts to an end through dialogue. Um, you know, he's taken a strong stance against British arms sales to Saudi in the context of the Yemen war. And he stood up for all that, he stood up for his kind of beliefs when it came to um, those terrorist attacks during the election. He could have taken a very, very conventional foreign policy stance at that point. Um, he was under a lot of pressure when those terrorist attacks happened because people tried to um, you know, put focus on his unconventional view of British foreign policy, but he insisted on it. He said, look, we have to think about the role of British foreign policy in helping to exacerbate this threat. So he stood his ground, um, and this is new, I think, being an anti an, a leading political figure. Someone who's got a real chance of becoming our next prime minister is an anti militarist and an anti imperialist. Not only is that new in British foreign policy, and in, in, in Britain, I think it's new internationally. I can't think of any time in the last several decades where it's been a realistic possibility that the leader of a UN Security Council permanent member, a great power, a great capitalist Western power, could be in the next few years an anti-militarist and an anti-imperialist. I don't think there's a precedent for that. So it really is huge and it's a challenge to the foreign policy elite, it's a challenge to conventional wisdom, it's a challenge to all sorts of things. So, um, yeah, it's really significant.
0: And it it clearly will have huge ramifications for Britain's political economy at home. Yep. Um, we talked a bit about the relationship between the city and the current sort of forward mil- militaristic posture. Um, yep. If we're talking about a different kind of foreign policy, presumably by necessity, we're talking about a different domestic economy as well.
1: Yeah, to some extent. I mean, this is this is an interesting one. Um, so if you look at... The way the British economy has changed over the past sort of 30, 40 years, because there's, um, you know, more emphasis now on things like services. Um, the financial sector plays a bigger role in the British economy, I would say, than ever before comparatively. Um, you know, manufacturing obviously has declined significantly. <clears throat> so the way we are plugged into the global economy is kind of different now to what it was. So I mean, the balance has changed. Yeah. And we see that in the current account deficit, so the, the, the gap between imports and exports of goods and services. So we've got a huge deficit on the balance of trading goods and services, huge deficit in the current account. And the way that's um, dealt with, so the pound doesn't crash, is through, um, it's, it's financed effectively through the capital accounts. We're talking about you have to, you have to attract capital inflows into the British economy to prop the pound up. And where do those capital inflows come from? We've talked about net positive capital inflows into the UK. A lot of it comes from from the Gulf, yeah. um, because these are states which have massive uh, current account surpluses, small populations, so they're the world leaders in sovereign wealth. They've got tens of billions of pounds sloshing around in their in their accounts, looking for places to invest in. <clears throat> And one of the big aims of it, and this is something I'll cover in my, in my PhD thesis, one of the major aspects of Britain's relationship with the Gulf States is how do we attract this capital, these what we call petrodollars, into the British financial system, into the British economy, as well as into our arms industry. Um, well, I think all of this speaks to how the development of British neoliberalism is, is, is strongly related to our wider foreign policy you know the fact that we've, we've become a neoliberal country has meant that we've developed this big current account deficit due to our overemphasis on financial services our lack of emphasis on exports of export of goods mm-hmm. and then there's, there's the increased need to attract gold Petrodollars dollars into our into our economy and of course if you want if got things like gold Petrodollars dollars have become so important you have to make sure that that flow is reliable. Um, so, that gives you an incentive to try and prop up these regimes, to prop up the Saudis, the Emiratis, Qataris, Kuwait. <clears throat> QA, and, yeah. so there's an added incentive to make sure those regimes stay in place, that they're stable, and so, you know, you have to support them, especially in moments like um, 2011, when the Arab uprisings happened, there's now a challenge to the conservative British order. So, you can, you can definitely see, you can map this out, how the changes in the British political economy um, map onto British Britain's sort of particular foreign policy commitments, especially in the Middle East.
0: Yeah, it's fascinating, and it's sa- I mean, it lo- you know, to the to the un untrained eye, it looks very much like um, Britain is encouraging grand corruption overseas because it feeds in be- feeds back to the City of London in in the form of capital flight. Um, so what I thought would be interesting. David is to look at look in a bit more detail uh, at the Middle East and look at the way that Britain is um, relating to the conflicts that are going on currently in in Yemen and in Syria. Yeah. So could could we talk a bit about the ways in which the the UK state is is approaching these two conflicts and and its complicity or otherwise in, in them both?
1: Yeah, <clears throat> yeah, sure. I mean let. us maybe set that in the broader context of the Arab uprisings and why they happened and I think that Britain's response to the Arab uprisings 2010-2011 onwards it helps us to understand British foreign policy in the region British foreign policy more generally so from December 2010 through early 2011 you have this wave of protests going on throughout the region you have a series of um, regimes either are toppled or severely challenged And this is a particular problem for British foreign policy because a lot of these, remember in the late 2000s, there's always talk about spreading democracy in the region. So after um, the failure to find weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, a new kind of story has to be told. So we start saying that what we're really doing in the Middle East is trying to spread democracy. It's all about democracy for much. And George Bush talks about his freedom agenda and all the rest of it.
0: Right.
1: What's interesting in 2010, 2011, just a few years after all that, is we find ourselves in the position where The drive for democracy in the region is coming from people on the ground. That's the real challenge to these regimes, that's the real challenge to authoritarianism in the region. And it's coming in many cases against regimes that we ourselves have backed and strengthened, whose security forces are trained and armed and equipped. Um, so we're kind of on the wrong side of history here, but anyhow, the response from Britain at that point, it seems to me, can be characterized like this. There are some of these regimes which we like, and there are some of these regimes which have been the regimes that have been challenged. There are some of these regimes which we like, and there are some of these re- regimes which we don't like. Right. And there are some of these regimes which kind of sit in the middle. So, the regimes we like are the barracks, Egypt, um, the Al-Khalifa's in um, in Bahrain, Saudi regime, Regimes we don't like are Syria and a regime that kind of is kind of in a grey area between the two is Libya, where we kind of like the people under Gaddafi and we're trying to get on with Libya better than we did, but we don't really like Gaddafi, it's kind of undeniable. So, I think what the British try and do is support their allies when their allies are coming under pressure from movements from below. if someone like Mubarak has to go, if it's completely untenable, then, okay, you say he has to go, but what you want ideally is enough reform to send the people in the streets back home but to preserve the fundamental um, status quo underneath, preserve the state structures, preserve those states' um, orientation with regard to foreign policy and preserve the economic status quo as well. So encouraging a little bit of reform but you don't want full, full-blown full revolution. You don't want that in Egypt, you, don't want, you certainly don't want that in Bahrain, you don't want that, absolutely, you don't want that in Saudi. <clears throat> Whereas with Libya, you've got the opportunity to get rid of a guy who you weren't really, you know, all that keen on to begin with, a guy who's unreliable, idiosyncratic and all the rest of it. But leave the substance of the regime in place. So the people who were set up to succeed, succeed have to succeed Gaddafi, to come after him, were the kind of neoliberal technocrats that the West was starting to deal with when the reconciliation happened between between the West and
0: Right.
1: So when you look at the two main conflicts that are happening now, Syria and Yemen, they both kind of come out of that and I think they're, you know, if you analyse British foreign policy with regard to those two issues, it's it's worth looking at it in in that kind of light. How do we, A, conserve, maintain a conservative regional order, and B, get rid of people or regimes who challenge or undermine that conservative regional order? So if you look at Syria first, with regard to Syria, you've got a regime which, you know, it talks up its anti-imperialist credentials, and I think those are really, really overstated, the anti-imperialist credentials of the Syrian regime. Um, but n- nonetheless, it's an ally of Iran, it's an ally of Hezbollah, it was until recently, until that war started, an ally of Hamas, so it's plugged into a wider um, set of alliances between groups and states who have challenged Western power in the region, so therefore the priority of the British government was to see that regime fall or undermined. Um, So that's British foreign policy in in Syria, and there's, I think, you know, people like, I think Cameron was more belligerent about overthrowing the Syrian regime, certainly than Obama was, Um, but either way, that that revolution is seen in that context, uprising is seen in that context. With with Yemen, it's different. So with Yemen, you had an uprising in 2011, as as you did elsewhere, and the guy who was in charge, uh, President Saleh, his removal was kind of negotiated, and he was replaced by his deputy, um, President Harder, um, who, who won a referendum, ninety um, percent of the vote. Um, great achievement. He was the only candidate, and the idea was that in that transition, you maintained the, the, the Yemeni state, you would maintain the structures, you maintain Yemen's foreign policy orientation. So when that government was overthrown a couple of years ago, you don't side with the revolutionaries, you don't side with the people who tried to overthrow the government or who overthrew the government, you side with the status quo. So the Saudis went in and tried to restore this guy, President Harder, and the British supported them. So you end up with a situation where in Syria, the state and its supporters, the Russians, are bombing um, indiscriminately carrying out um, yeah, indiscriminate killing up to and including possible war crimes, and the British are against it, and the British are, <clears throat> you know, uh, making a big noise about how terrible it all is, rightly so. And then in Yemen, where the state or other the state's allies are carrying out indiscriminate killing um, and trying to, to, to shore up and defend the status quo, there the British are supporting it, the British are providing the arms um so the british position is completely reversed depending on whether um the status quo ante was 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 um sort of conducive to the british interests or not
0: fascinating so yeah and and, and this i think brings us quite neatly to um the nature of media representations of foreign policy um yeah. where obviously we see um a very significant difference in the in the coverage um, of, of of Yemen and, and Syria. Can you can you talk a bit about your your impressions of that and 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 how you think, as it were, the representations relate to the reality?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think this this is really revealing. So, I don't want to say that Syria and, and Yemen are identical situations, but they are there's a high degree of similarity in, insofar as is a really, really brutal civil war, large level of, um, of indiscriminate killing, very complex, lots of different actors, not just very clearly one side and another side. And attached to each conflict is a major, major humanitarian crisis. So the humanitarian crisis in Yemen is arguably the worst in the world. You've got millions of people on the brink of famine, you've got millions of people dependent on humanitarian aid, you've got millions of people... Um, who don't have clean drinking water, don't have access to decent sanitation. You've got the world's largest in history, cholera um, outbreak, hundreds of thousands of people, hundreds of thousands of people have contracted cholera in recent months in Yemen. Um, yeah, we're, we're so two massive humanitarian disasters in Syria and in Yemen. And as I say, in Syria, one of the major actors um, guilty of The large portion of the killing is is an opponent, a strategic opponent of the British state. And we know all about Syria, because Syria is on the front page of the um, major newspapers, Syria is at the top of news bulletins, Syria is the subject of one op-ed after another, saying, why don't we do something about this, we should intervene, and all the rest of it. It's the subject of major debates in the House of Commons. Everyone knows about Syria. In fact, if you look at a recent poll that was done, it shows like maybe up to 90% of the British public is aware of what's happening in Syria. And then you look at Yemen. So in Yemen, the indiscriminate bombing is being done by one of our allies. It's being done with by the Saudis. Um, it's being done with, often, British-made jets dropping British-made drop bombs, firing British-made missiles, British-made jets piloted by British-trained pilots, um, large amount of indiscriminate killing, which has helped to trigger this massive humanitarian catastrophe. And where's the coverage of Yemen? It's not on the front pages. It's not at the top of the news bulletins. You'll struggle to find an opinion article about it in any of the major newspapers. It's very rare the very people, the very opinion writers who will be urging us to intervene in Syria and saying, why aren't we intervening in Syria? It's a stone in our conscience and all the rest of it. You know the sort of people I'm talking about, the liberal, human, liberal interventionist types. I'm not a word from people like that about Yemen. And with Yemen, what Britain could do with regard to Yemen is just stop arming the Saudis. Just pull the plug on British support for Indiscriminate Saudi bombing in in Yemen. That's something we could do straight away. And you will struggle to find any any op eds calling for that. You will struggle to find the sort of liberal interventionist types in the Labour Party calling for that. On the contrary, often they support the Saudi bombing campaign. So the way in which Syria and Yemen have been treated by the British intellectual culture and the British political class are really quite radically different. Where one one case we're supporting, the very sort of thing that we oppose when Bashar al-Assad is, not by support, I mean the theory of, of arms, provision of ammunition, provision of military jets, the ongoing provision of technical and logistical support to the Saudi Royal Air Force while it's carrying out these missions, because all that's part of the arms contracts that we've got. with um, So it's a really really revealing episode, and the media treatment of it is particularly revealing I think. If you look at what media coverage there is. So the, the one difference is the lack of prominence, the fact that you don't find it covered to the same level of prominence as Syria, right. despite the fact that here it's more fault than what's happening in Syria. But we don't talk about it to the same degree. But when we do talk about it, if you look at, um, so there's a the most recent article I can find on the BBC News website, it's dated 27th um, of, of July. on um, on the humanitarian situation with regard to Yemen. And they've got lots of good discussion about the cholera outbreak, about the humanitarian situation, about the fact that it's largely exacerbated by a Saudi blockade of the country and the Saudi bombing campaign. At no point in that news story do they mention the fact half the Saudi Royal Air Force is British military jets. At no point do they point out that the British are giving ongoing technical and logistical support to that bombing camp. At no point do they point out that it is, as I say, British made fighter jets, tornadoes, typhoons, sold by Thatcher, sold by Blair and Brown, um, dropping British made bombs supplied by David Cameron and Theresa May. None of that is mentioned in the cover, which is astonishing. So, I mean, yeah, it's a really, really revealing um, discrepancy between the way the two conflicts are treated by the media and the way they're talked about by the, the broader political class. And I'm anyone who's interested in the political economy of the mass media, um, if you've read your Noam Chomsky, you remember that the way Noam Chomsky talks about these instances. He talks about paired examples. History throws up a paired example. Two different conflicts. How does the media treat them? Masses of interest in the conflict, whereas a strategic opponent of our government, Hardly any interest when it's our government that's, that's complicit. It's very much along along those kind of lines. I think you know anyone interested in the media who wants to do a PhD about foreign um, you know, coverage of foreign policy, there's a really really promising research project to be done here. You know, look at the media coverage of Syria, look at the media coverage of Yemen, and look at the differences in the, in terms of the extent to which issues discussed the prominence that the stories are given on the websites and in in the pages of the newspaper, and the terms in which the two conflicts are discussed. Yeah, very revealing and a very promising research project.
2: project David, I mean, this has been a pretty consistent um, finding for research projects, I mean, in the United States and in Britain and in other places that the media will um, the, these sort of port- reporting patterns that you've been describing. I wonder w- what your sense is of the kind of um, uh, factors that, that, dr- that drive this coverage because one of the things that there's less kind of consensus around um, I mean it's just simply a consistent finding that these are the kinds of reporting patterns that exist. Yeah. Uh, you've had perhaps more uh, a degree of experience with what gets called the mainstream media. I wonder if you could talk a bit more about your own sense from your own experiences and your reading as to how you understand these particular patterns of reporting, the sorts of things that are driving them, but also um, the extent to which there is a diversity uh, within the UK media, how people should think about these things. Yeah,
1: yeah. Um, I mean... So you can start with your sense of the political economy of the mass media and the fact that much of it is corporate owned and you know owned by capitalists who have certain interests which are aligned to those of the state. And so there's a kind of um, alignment between the interests of the capitalists who run newspapers and the interests of the people who run the state. And so the kind of um, yeah, and so you have that kind of almost loyalty. Um, but I don't think that covers all of it. I think that's a good starting point, and then you have to work out from that. So it doesn't really explain Guardian coverage, because it really, it's not you know, a capitalist newspaper, perhaps in the same way as others are. It doesn't explain BBC coverage. So I think you have to look at things like ideology as well, um, kind of ideology of, for want of a better word, the ruling class, or certainly the class of people who own and run and edit, and right for the major um, you know, major institutions, the kind of dominant ideology, I guess, with regard to those people is one that sees the British state as fundamentally benign, um, characterised by its liberal values, um, and so it's, I think it's difficult from, the, from that ideological standpoint. It's difficult to process what's happening in the end. Because here you've got the British state supporting a one of the most authoritarian governments in the world, Saudi. Um, helping that state to A, commit indiscriminate killing of civilians and create a to humanitarian catastrophe. I think it's you'd struggle if you sign up to sort of dominant liberal values or dominant liberal ideology to process that through that ideology. How do you make sense of it? We're supposed to be. liberal interveners. We're supposed to be the democracy promoters, and here we are supporting an anti-democratic regime to create a humanitarian catastrophe. Um, So maybe people turn away from it at an instinctive level because they can't process it intellectually. Whereas if you look at Syria, um, I mean Syria is almost perfect for that kind of ideology. You've got an evil authoritarian who's committing mass murder, creating a humanitarian catastrophe and is a strategic opponent of the West. So the only real question is the extent to which we're going to intervene in that conflict. And you can talk about how you know, you're fighting evil and you're intervening to stop humanitarian catastrophe, we are intervening to stop indiscriminate killing. So you can feed the serious story into that kind of framework. Why aren't we intervening? We should intervene. You know, um, is it pragmatic for us to intervene all that kind of thing. That will, fits within that, within that liberal ideological framework, I don't think Yemen fits within it at all, so you know, that might be one aspect of it. Um, In the
2: sense that the people writing about it um, just find it easier to navigate the conflicts and therefore to write opinion pieces about it.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, there's a really interesting discrepancy between liberal interventionists, newspaper columnists talking about Syria and talking about Yemen, and by as in they talk about one and not about the other, mm-hmm. despite the fact that we've got much more ability to do something about what's happening in Yemen than we have in the case of Syria. And I think a lot of it is idealized. And um, there's a recent there's a really good article by journalist Nezrin Malik. I forget who she wrote this for now. Um but it was after one of the parliamentary debates on intervening in Syria. And she said what she noticed when she listened to the debate was how it's not really about People in Syria. It's more about us. What does it mean? What does it say about us that we're not intervening? You know, what's our role in the world? This is a test for us. This is a test for the British state. Are we really, you know, playing an international role in the way that we imagine? Are we really the, the, the liberal humanitarian actor in the world that we imagine? It's all very narcissistic, you know. Yeah. Um, and I think one of the reasons the series become a big topic in, in, in um, Western intellectual discourse is not so much about the people, because if it was just about that, then we'd be talking about Yemen far more, because we're more responsible for what's happening in Yemen. I think it's also, it's become a kind of, a place for us to perform all these liberal humanitarian um, aspects of our dominant ideology, whereas with Yemen it's just a bit difficult to talk about that. So I think the, the uh, the ideology the ideological aspect of it is one is one part. Um and then that kind of a uh, more basic level it could it can depend from one editor to the next, it can depend from one journalist to the next, that what their approach is going to be. You have journalists like Irina Craig people with enormous integ- integrity and dedication doing doing fantastic work trying to bring these things to light. You have people with The guardian doing the same. Um, when I've been trying to get articles into mainstream news media on this issue, I find it really depends which commissioning editor you're pitching to, or which, which institution you're pitching to. Some of them are just more open than others. You know, some of them are just more interested than others. Um so you know, these systems they're not perfect. I think if you start with if you start and end with an account of the political economy of the mass media as a kind of you know, it's got its it's got its capitalist kind of interests and therefore it's got its functions, that will take you so far. Yeah. But, you know, openings do exist within these systems. These systems are perfect. You can't just have a kind of functionalist approach to it. These systems have their, you know, there'll be people who work within those systems who have a degree of agency within them and who might be more receptive to you saying, look, I want to write something about Yemen. Yeah, because is really serious and we haven't been talking about it.
0: So, uh, uh, David, as I as I hear you talk, I think it would be fantastic if we could um, share on Twitter, th- on your uh, with your guidance, some some outlets and some perhaps some particular articles and writers that you think would be useful for UK um, listeners um, to know more about. Because, as you say, it's not a monolithic system, yeah, um, yeah. and it would be great, I think, if we could point people towards those those writers and those sources who can can give a, you know a better steer um, than, the, than from what we see in some of the mainstream uh, media I think your point about ideology is really interesting because it suggests to me that the the public school oxbridge orientation of uh, of the so-called elite media is not just it's not just a, a sort of function of Domestic inequality um, in the labour market. I think actually that that deep immersion um, in a kind of liberal imperial identity, um, yeah. which moves into this sort of this, as you say, this idea of Britain as a promoter of democracy, Britain as a rational power, um, Britain as a competent power, yeah, um, a, a, a force for good in the world. You know, an agent. You know, a, a trusted interlocutor and so on these these ideas i think are are bred in the bone to some extent when you talk yeah. to uh, certainly you know bbc journalists you, you get a sense that they are quite un, sort of un, un, unselfconsciously uh they identify with with the british state project um and these aren't monsters uh you know they're not in personal terms kind of monstrous people but as you say i think that they they would Steer away from Yemen as a as a really a threat to their identity.
1: Yeah, um, I think that's that, that, I think that's fair. Yeah, um, if you if you go back to there's a really interesting sort of moment just after. if you remember the vote on intervening in Syria against Assad? There was later a vote for intervening in Syria against ISIS, which passed in I think it was December 2015. But in August September 2013. If you recall, there was a vote on intervening in Syria against Assad as yeah. uh, due to a chemical attack on the, one of the suburbs of Damascus, and because that vote, because that was voted down, there was this huge kind of outpouring of anguish from liberal interventionist commentators. If you read people like Nick Cohen, David Horovitz, if you read uh, Times editorial from the period, the Economist had an editorial as well, Hadi Ashdown wrote something. And all these people were portraying this as a kind of, this failure to intervene, as a kind of betrayal of what Britain was supposed to be, i.e. a internationalist, outward-looking um, nation and an alternative isolationism. This is how it was portrayed. I mean, right. Bill Osborne said similar things. And in fact, these kind of tropes started appearing throughout elite discussion about foreign policy in the months after that. Are we internationalist or are we isolationist? Are we outward-looking or are we inward-looking? Um, and you can see how what you and I would regard as imperialism or militarism is, in this ideological framing, it's being outward-looking, it's being Yeah. So this is how they kind of you know, it's not a deliberate attempt to, to to gloss it. I think that's that's obviously genuinely how these people see it. So they see it as a betrayal for us not to be intervening in Syria, despite the fact that it's not at all clear that this would make um make the situation better, it'd probably escalate, but could very likely escalate the conflict and make it worse. Right. But I yeah, mean it could it could potentially lead to World War three, right?
0: I mean <laughs> the risks in Syria are are significant,
1: presumably well, if you talk about the fact that on the one hand you've got a regime backed by Russia and on the other hand you've got rebels backed by the United States, then yeah. The idea escalating a war like that seems to me to be an extremely bad idea. You know, effectively a proxy conflict between the two the world's two nuclear powers, nuclear superpowers, it's an extremely poor idea it seems to me, escalating a situation like that and I'm, I'm stunned to be honest that we don't talk about it in those terms, yeah. it, the, the point is almost never raised because if, it, if there was a nuclear exchange between Russia and the US it wouldn't be because someone has decided now would be a fantastic time to have global armageddon, what it would be would be someone on even, tensions escalate between the two, no side wants to back down and then someone makes a move, The others, one side makes a move, but the other side misinterprets, misunderstands, and that's how you become involved in a conflict that escalates to the, to the nuclear level. Yeah. So if there's ever going to be a conflict like that, it will happen, probably through something like Syria or the Baltic States or Ukraine, where the two sides just face off against each other, and neither side backs down, and then someone misinterprets something, and it all turns, you know, it's game over. So. The talk about escalating the conflict in Syria was, there's, a, there's an aspect of it that's almost, I mean it's reckless, it's extremely reckless and I think a lot of it was, to go back to what we talking about a moment ago, a lot of it is bound up with this sense of who we are, what's our sense of self, you know, what's the sense of self of the British state yeah. and the people around it, you know. We're committed to this idea that we're liberal humanitarians and our, and our military power is there for liberal humanitarian ends. And here was an opportunity for us to express that, and we failed to take it. What does it say about us? you know
0: right um, this is kind of the sort of narcissism in play as you as you say
1: yeah, yeah um, narcissism is exactly the word I think
0: yeah, and I think it's an interesting feature of great powers isn't it that they both both britain and, and, and America we have this habit of turning the world into a, a sort of you know a, a theater for our own dramas. Yeah, um, you yeah. see that very vividly in American attitudes towards Vietnam, where it's like those villainous Vietnamese who made us go over there and kill them all, um, uh, and, and it they, they you know the rest of the world becomes part of an internal psychodrama. Yeah. We could talk much more, I think, about the ways in which Britain's foreign policy and its imperial identity or the imperial past play out in the in the present, and in terms of the ways in which. The, the British in general and the English perhaps more particularly understand themselves, how they construct their themselves, how they construct their idea of, of Englishness um, by contrast with the rest of the world and I would lo- I'd love it if you could come on again and we could talk about that in more detail. But what I'd like to do in the in the final part of the show is really talk to you a bit about how you think we can start to change this. How we can start to change both the substance of um, UK foreign policy and perhaps as a first step, start to change the ways in which we think about and talk about UK foreign policy.
1: Yeah. I think we're at a moment now where there's a real potential opening for a change of direction. Um, I think we're, we're at a moment now, particularly with Brexit, where we're starting to debate what Britain's role is in the world, who we are as a country, and there are obviously very different sort of clashing visions of that. But fine, good, because, you know, if, if things are in flux, that gives you an opportunity to change things. But what was really interesting about the election debate was that moment around foreign policy and terrorism, where Corbyn was able to save things that perhaps 10 years ago, if, uh, if he had been in charge of Labour Party then, it had been Labour leader then, it would have gone down very, very badly. But after 15 years of the failure of the war on terror, so-called, um, I think the British public are much more receptive now to the idea that you know the projection of British military power in the world is not necessarily a good thing, it doesn't necessarily make us a safer, safer. a more sort of thoroughgoing critique about the nature of British foreign policy in the world, Um, Is perhaps not quite there yet, but I think there's a certain level of disquiet amongst the public when you look at opinion polls. There's certainly, um, you know, concern in the British military establishment that it's getting harder and harder to to justify British interventions. That there are that there's much less public faith in British military intervention in the world, and how it makes does, does it or doesn't make the world a safer place. I think the proposition that British military is a force for good in the world, or British military interventionism is a force for good in the world. That proposition has been tested to destruction since since 2001. Um, and that, that really opens up possibilities, I think, because the left can now say, which I mean the anti-militarist, anti-imperialist left, not the sort of, you know, um, interventionist centre left. We can now say, well, look, look what's happened over the last 15 years. Um, look at the role that Britain's played in, in the region. Um, you know, look at how destructive it's been. But look also at what we've learned about the nature of British power reports. Look at the fact that we've backed the Saudis while they've been doing what they've been doing in Yemen. Look at the fact that we've been arming regimes like Bahrain when they crush peaceful democracy protesters, uh, um, what is protesters. What does all this tell us about our role in the world at the moment? And if we don't like it, What should we do differently? Um, You know, there are polls showing that a large proportion of the British public think it's wrong to arm Saudi Arabia. That it's wrong to arm authoritarian regimes. Um, So you you couple that with the increasing disquiet about military interventionism, and you've got an opening where you can now say to the British public, right, let's try and do something different. And the fact that someone like Jeremy Corbyn can not only become Labour leader. Can fight a general election, get forty percent of the vote. Twelve million, was it twelve point eight million people voted for him, you know, more than voted for Blair in two of his um, election victories. That says a lot about the extent to which the British public prepared to give that kind of politics a fair hearing. Um, which I think is very, it's, it's very, um, it's very encouraging, very encouraging indeed. So we should use perhaps this, this recent period of history. As, a, as an educative, as, a, as, a, as a, it's got a potential to educate people. Yeah. Um, and it's potential to raise consciousness, raise awareness, and potential to be turned into, you know, a new, a new kind of foreign policy for the country which has popular legitimacy amongst a sufficient number of the public in order to, to sustain.
0: That's fascinating. That's fascinating. And, and hearing you talk as well, it, it strikes me that there is there's a prize to be won isn't there in tying British foreign policy as it currently stands to the ways in which you see deepening inequality play out in the domestic economy um, foreign policy and financialization it seems to me are very very closely tied and yep. financialization at home is leading to a a, you know, a crisis in housing a situation where more and more of our incomes are being taken in, as it were, obligatory payments in the form of rent or mortgage repayments or utility charges. And there's a sense in which if we're going to unpick um, the uh, the catastrophe of a financialised domestic economy, that will bring with it the space in which we can move away from this this really criminal nexus that we've created, Um in the Gulf and elsewhere, yeah. um, David, it's been absolutely fascinating to talk talk with you and, and hear your your take on these issues. Um, Tom, is there is there anything you'd like to 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 sort of raise or or talk to David about before we wind things up?
2: No, um, I was just going to comment that I think one of the things that's worth mentioning. Building on what you just said is that there are sections of the Labour Party which, for which, you know, uh, Corbyn is uh, a step too far in terms of challenging foreign policy consensus. And I think it's, you know, it is interesting just going back to what David said at the beginning about the extent to which Corbyn does represent uh, a break with uh, a certain foreign policy consensus which hasn't been impressed upon by the public and by formal politics. So I think we are a quite um, potentially exciting and very important moment, uh, and there will definitely for the, for those people who are involved in the Labour Party, there will be a strong pushback from sections of the Labour Party which have really formed around these key issues, particularly you know nuclear disarmament and um, the close allegiance with the United States. So I think you know forming a more rational um, foreign policy, which would be better for people in the UK but um, perhaps more importantly in some ways people living elsewhere who don't have any say in our foreign policy. Uh, we are, we're in an important moment now and I think the more that people on the left can educate themselves about these issues and bring these into um, discussion, there's still a lot of ground to be won over on this and I think, that, you know, we've made real strides uh, with uh, issues of a more egalitarian political economy. And there's still a lot to be done on this particular issue. And, um, you know, despite the the shifts in public opinion that David's mentioned, which, you know, which follow on from Iraq.
0: Yeah, I think you're right. I think there will be an attempt to to minimise the impact of, the, as it were, the Corbyn moment and say, well, you can have some social democracy at home. We, we can roll back some of this, these excesses of neoliberalism at home. But we're going to leave the the fundamentals of the UK state and its global position intact and i think the the, the answer to that has to be that if we want true social democracy at home that entails a change to our foreign policy and it, t- it entails this breaking of this this link between a financialized economy and a militarized foreign policy and as you yeah. say there's enormous amounts of ground that we need to to cover in this because it's tempting to think oh actually you know we we have to leave the the commanding heights to the grown-ups. But actually, I think it is in, the, in in things like the structure of our foreign policy that you find the, the seeds of, of our domestic dysfunctions. Yeah, um, good. Well, I, I, thank you again, uh, David, for, for coming and talk to us. Um, David can be found on Twitter at David Waring. And um, as I say, I thoroughly recommend you follow him and, to, and check out some of his, his journalism. Hopefully over the next uh, few days we'll, we'll tweet some of um, his recommendations, suggestions for for outlets and writers to follow on UK foreign policy. Um, it only remains for me to thank my co-host Tom Mills, TA underscore Mills on Twitter, uh, David Waring, who joins us today, at David Waring on Twitter. And to remind you that you can follow uh, the uh, Media Democrats Uh, Twitter account and we're brought to you by The Media Fund at The Media Fund on Twitter so many Twitter accounts so much social media to follow and one day one day we're going to have our own Facebook page maybe Um, okay thanks again for joining us and we look forward to speaking to you or speaking at you soon